I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Courtney from Livewire, and thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We love being able to offer this free service to our listeners, and in order to offset that cost, we're hoping that you might be willing to donate whatever you can on our website at livewireradio.org. Because yes, we've heard the saying that the best things in life are free, but we've also heard that other one. There's no such thing as a free podcast. Enjoy the show. This is the BBC World Service. I'm Nigel Pennywhistle. It seems that Sarah Ferguson is in trouble again. Another recording has surfaced of her attempting to trade money in exchange for access to the royal family, this time with an American. So we're talking total prince access, right? Rather! £500,000 will really open doors if you know what I mean. Oh, this wine is excellent. Yeah, Ernest and Julio Gallo really know their way around a grape. Here, let me get you a glass. Or, or not. Um, hey, would you mind using the ashtray? I must stress that the prince has no knowledge of this arrangement. <laughs> wank, wank, nudge, nudge. <laughs> hey, hey uh, why do you keep calling him the prince? It's, it's just prince, like Madonna. Well, there are, after all, several princes. Oh, like impersonators? Oh, tell me about it. This one time I thought I saw Prince at Disneyland, but it turned out to be a 15-year-old Filipino girl with lip fuzz. Close. Close, but uh, no cigar. I want access to the real Prince. You know, Tonight I'm gonna party like it's 1999. Oh, you know. Prince! Oh, formerly known as the artist, formerly known as Prince. Also formerly known as the unpronounceable symbol that looks very much like a spastic ankh. What a delightful misunderstanding. You must simply share the story with Andrew. <laughs> uh, who the hell is Andrew? My ex-husband. I thought you were married to Josh Duhamel. Wait a minute. You're not Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas? No! No, 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 though I did once spend the night with a pea hidden under my mattress. I had no idea it was there. I'm barely royal. I'm the Duchess of York. <laughs> that explains the accent. I thought you were just being a poser like Madonna. This doesn't alter our arrangement, does it? Are you kidding? I'm not going to fork over that kind of dough to hang out with the ex-husband of the Weight Watchers chick. In America, we don't pay that kind of moolah for access to marginal celebrity. We already have a way to do that, and it's a hell of a lot cheaper. It's, it's... Live Wire! 
the beautiful Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. Marginalizing celebrities since... What year did Daniel Baldwin move here? It's Livewire! And now it's the host of Livewire. No stranger to scandals, though she is estranged from her sandals. Ever since the humiliating sock-slash-Birkenstock debacle of 1993, Courtney Hameister! Welcome to the show, everybody. It is a great night for foodies here on Livewire, because we're going to learn a bit about why you might want to get to know your local farmers, from Erica Palmer of Plate and Pitchfork, who's brought chef Vitali Paley and farmer Michael Payne with her tonight, so we're excited about that. It is also a great night for literary types. We have Pulitzer Prize winning author of Empire Falls and Nobody's Fool, Richard Russo is here with us tonight. Very exciting. And one of our favorite musical guests is back, perhaps the only musician in the Northwest or the world to have a book of tweets published. John Roderick is here with us tonight for the Long Winters. But before we get to all that, please meet the amazing members of Faces for Radio Theater. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Laura Faye Smith, the stunning siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, we have poet Scott Poole, the author of Hiding from Salesman. He'll be in our audience. He'll be writing furiously during the hour and at the end of the show. He's going to come back and he's going to tell us what, he's, what we've all learned tonight. And of course, we can't do the show ever, 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 and wouldn't ever want to without the extraordinary house band. Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops! <laughs> John Roderick's here tonight, and um, he published a book of tweets, and I'm hoping to be published. I'm pretty excited about that idea. So I just jumped on this whole Twitter daily. Um, I've heard it's a really good way to kind of just get your story out there. So uh, here, it's, it's, I'm going to do a little bit of a reading of uh, the tweets from a first night on Twitter. It was a great night. Um, and so here, here we go. 734, my first tweet. Uh, sitting down with a bottle of wine, a good book, and McKitty, also a nice chev and poppy seed crackers. Life is good. I heard you should talk about what you're eating a lot on the Twitters and the Facebooks. 7.45, books getting a little spooky, but reading is fun. In fact, you're doing it right now. I'm totally meta. <laughs> that was my tweet. 8 o'clock, I am glad God invented wine. This one is excellent. 8.25, do you think you're better than me? 8.45, seriously, do you? 8.51, think you're better than me, because you aren't. 9.03, noise in the attic, probably now thing. You are still not better than me. I'm not quite sure what, I was, what was going on there. 9.08, nose again, could be cat... Also heard noise. Cat now under my skirt clinging to my laundry day granny panties. Okay, nine, ten, should have gotten dog. Nine, fifteen, noise again could be Jason from Fur Day the 12th movies because I memorized his footsteps in the sixth movie for this very reason. 
I'm almost Sue. I ran out of characters. I don't know. Oh, 916. Re, it is him. Please call 911. And 917. Oh, I am on my phone right now, Twittering. I will do it myself. 1147. Police are mean. And I'm not sure about this Twitter thing. And they're... And they're pressing charges. You know, that, that might not have been the night to read to you guys. Um, but I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it, and I feel like I'm going to have a book published soon, too, just like, just like our fabulous first guest. According to John himself, he formed the band The Long Winters from one of his ribs in 2001 in Seattle. Um, but, but that critically acclaimed band is just one of many things that he's at the center of. He's also involved in the literary community. He's volunteered with 826 Seattle, Dave Eggers' writing program for kids. And his book of extremely short prose, Electric Aphorisms, gives the world the gift of John's musings in digestible 140-character tidbits. Please welcome John Roderick to Livewire. Hi, John. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be here. So I just wanted to, to talk to you briefly before you sang your first song, mm-hmm. um, because the first, you're, the first song that you're, that you're singing tonight is called Not Moving to Portland. Not Moving to Portland is the title. Um, but I wanted, you, I wanted you to explain that a little bit, because it's actually not, it's not an anti-Portland song. Not at all. Yeah. I love Portland. Portland is one of America's best places. <laughs> and... Portland has become a kind of uh, proxy for everyone in America who wants to live in a small, nicely proportioned city with heritage chickens and food carts. And, um, and my feeling is that one option for those people, if they're living in Minneapolis or if they're living in uh, Saratoga is to move to Portland, and another option is for them to stay the hell in Saratoga and make it into a Portland of wherever that is. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Right? I mean, uh, I guess what the song is about is you cannot solve the problems that you have wherever you live by moving to Portland and starting a hip-hop side project with your new boyfriend who works at this cafe next door to the Dreamcatcher store that you started. (laughs) With, With the money that you should have been spending to pay your tuition. <laughs> That's what the song is really about. Well, that, I can't wait to hear it now. Ladies and gentlemen, John Roderick. Start with a ticket and a charge Explaining how we're not that far apart But you lost me on the way And though you claim you've got a plan to go I feel your body moving closer even so But you've got to follow your feelings And you should know I don't want to leave just to go And I'm not trying to be hard to reach But I put away my own Doubt and I wait. 
So you sing it the way you want to hear it sung You grab the telephone the minute before it's rung And you call out into space saying Do you ever want to run? Well, I want to run and I want you to come Just as you first came to me Wearing only perfume and a coat And too, too much to drink And I said, hey, Sonia You play too rough, but I I whimped out and Got me by the throat And all your bicycles Are dreaming of their brakes But my dreams Have all been Fake So Fake So you just as you first came to me wearing only perfume and a coat and too too much to drink John Roderick so uh, you were recently at Sasquatch I was uh, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, and it was—it's—it's it's interesting because I do read—I read your blog posts, I read your tweets, and you come—you come off, and I don't think you'll be surprised to hear this as—as as a bit of a misanthrope, I would say. Really? Uh, <laughs> um, I how, think that that is a little bit. Uh, I think that that you might be reading some of my uh, adverbs uh, wrong. Just the adverbs. Just the adverbs. I mean, yeah, all the where, other. Everything else is good, but the adverbs is where it's. That's where it's really telling exactly. how a person feels about mankind. So, uh, how do, how does a person such as yourself, uh, who uses adverbs negatively, um, handle the large swelling crowds of a of a Sasquatch type festival? Well, it's interesting. This is something that 
I think is true of human beings, and that is that the more of them there are in a space, uh, the, the sort of less onerous they are uh, if you are the star. Ah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're in a bus station and you're not the star, the more people there are, the worse it is. Right? If you're in a train compartment, there's a limit to the number of people you want to see come in. But if you're a, a rock star, there's really no limit to the number of people you'd like to look out at. And uh, so I find that it's really in small doses that I don't like people. But in big, large instances where people have paid money to see me, I find them imminently charming. Actually, I have one of your tweets uh, from Sasquatch. We're at Sasquatch today. The backstage area looks like the Ellensburg Community Theater held an open casting call for the musical Hair. Well, you may have noticed, and I, I don't, I'm not telling Portland or Oregon anything you don't already know, but the fashion for men has gotten a little squirrely lately. And by squirrely, I mean actually looking like a squirrel. <laughs> and so the backstage of Sasquatch is just like, it was absolutely ground zero for like skinny dudes in girls' jeans with long beards and... Plenty of hair, but still in a kind of comb-over pattern, inexplicably. Like, the comb-over is a technology for people who don't have hair, and it's being misused, I think, by some hairy, hairy little guys. Well, speaking of that, actually, you, you recently shaved your beard, and I feel like it's a cry for help. Because no, those of us in the Northwest are wondering, I mean, are, can, will you still be able to play music? Can I am making create? a stand for civilization against a tide of, of, uh, of like, uh, chaos. I, I, you know, I rode the train down here from Seattle today. And, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Amtrak employee that I invited to the show. <laughs> One, woo! And, uh... And the train broke down in Vancouver, Washington. Yeah, that's their Vancouver posse here. Uh, the train broke down, and, uh, and the, the 150 people on the train trying to navigate this crisis of being in Vancouver, of, you know, 15 minutes from their de- destination, uh, it, it blew my mind. It seems, like the, it seems like the standard of decorum, where one can claim to be like a civilized person, is just that you're not actively throwing your feces at, at the people around you. Like, that's where we're at now. If you're, not act, if you're not actually sliming people, then you're, like, behaving in a sort of Emily Post kind of authorized way now. Um, let's just briefly talk about your book, because I want people to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a, it's a, great, it's a great book. Um, it's Electric Aphorisms is the, is the title of the book. It's another um, way to appreciate me where I don't have to interact with you and I get money. <laughs> um, and it is. It's, it's, just, it's a book of your tweets over the course of uh, six months, I would say. Yeah. Right around there. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it's an annoyance, I think. A lot of people think it's sort of an annoyance, but, but I think what I've heard from writers and comics is that it actually improves your writing. D- it, was that your experience of using it? You know, it's a form of writing if used as a form of writing. And when people tweet about what they ate six times a day 
First of all, they're eating three times too many. And, and second of all, it's terrible, right? That's, that's, Twitter should not do that. But, but if you take the opportunity to use 140 characters to write something, then it's just like any other uh, writing format. Or, or, except it's 140 characters. Right. So, yeah, I, 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 I took it as a challenge to have all my tweets actually be 140 characters exactly. Which, yes, ooh. It, which is impressive. This is, this is a literary audience, ooh. But what's, but what's frustrating to other Twitter users is that if you really love a tweet, if you think it's fantastic, which the majority of your tweets are, I'll just say that. Merci. Um, you you want to retweet it, but when you but when you tweet something, you have to leave about twenty characters or so left over, so people can retweet you. So he really was he was I, I lording thwart, over your that's followers. That's right. I thwart the social networking aspect of Twitter. If you like my tweet, appreciate it in silence. <laughs> Go to a place in your cave and think about it, and don't retweet it. Don't. It's not your content. It, it doesn't to make you. it doesn't make your Twitter feed more interesting. Uh, well, but you know for what? some people it does. <laughs> you know what? It's just I'm just I'm I'm peeing up a rope. <laughs> I'm standing athwart culture saying stop. And uh, who was it that said that? Was that William F. Buckley? That's peeing the only thing rope? he and I have in common. The book is Electric Aphorisms, and the record, the next record is coming out. Well, think? the next Long Winter's record has been out for a year and a half. I just didn't tell anybody about it. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, it's almost done. I'm working on it. If there are any Long Winter's fans listening, it's almost done. Okay. I just have to. Thank you. We'll look for it later in the year, longwinters.com. Longwinters.com. Yeah. Well, and you'll come back later in the show, and you're going to maybe another sing song. another song yeah. for us. Thanks so much. John Thank Roderick, Courtney. everybody. You're listening to Livewire Radio, offering up comedy, music, and conversation in deliciously digestible bursts. Coming up, the folks from Plate and Pitchfork, author Richard Russo, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back after this short break. Erica Palmer had a simple idea. She wanted to create gatherings where people would eat meals close to or on the site in which those meals were grown to help promote the idea of local sustainable foods. It started small, but it grew into something much larger. Now, 12 times a year, Plate and Pitchfork combines an award-winning chef with a local farmer from 10 to 110 acres, and guests tour the farm and then share a delicious meal. 
Tonight, Erica has brought a chef and a farmer with her to talk about how it all works. Please welcome Erica Palmer, Chef Vitali Paley of Paley's Place, and Michael Payne from Gaining Ground Farm. Welcome to the show, you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, Erica, I wanted to talk to you first just about how, f- first, first of all, why you began these meals and then how you organized the first one. Uh, years ago, I was working with a friend on another event, and uh, we had this notion that people really didn't know where their food was coming from. We'd read a study about um, high school students not being able to trace their food source beyond the grocery store, and that struck us as appalling. So... That was the catalyst to trying to reconnect people with their food. And in a community like Portland, where we have so many amazing chefs and incredible farmers, it was an easy, it's an easy option. So the, the very first time that you had this, this idea and wanted to do it, what sort of response were you getting from people when you called them and asked them to participate? The farmers all said, wow, we've always wanted to do this, and we just never have the time. We're busy farming. And the chef said, well, if you give us flame and give us product, and we'll cook in a field. <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems like a challenge, and we can, we can talk about that later. I wanted to talk to uh, Vitaly and Michael both. You've both participated in the past, but you've never actually been paired up. Yeah. Um, and that's actually what Erica does. She just, you, you pair up a chef and, and a farmer. How does that conversation start? When you're paired up, what's the first thing that you talk about to begin the process of putting together one of these meals? This is Vitaly Paley, restaurant Paley's Place. Well, as far as pairing farmers and chefs, uh, there's a conversation that happens back and forth. She'll ask me who I want to work with this year, and I'll throw out a couple of names, and I'll throw out a couple of names of the wineries. And then she'll say, well, these are the people that are actually doing it this year, and we just go with the flow from there. It's, it's obviously really stressful to be in a kitchen. Is it stressful to be on a farm cooking no, not at as all. well in the middle it's of a field? Lot, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it just... I mean, picture yourself cooking corn amongst the cornfields and the same thing, people eating corn while they're staring at a cornfield. That's an, that's an experience that you can't replicate right. in a kitchen in a restaurant. And I think, and Michael, as a, as a farmer, I, it seems like you wouldn't get the opportunity a lot to see people eating the product that you're actually growing uh, beyond your friends and family. What's that experience like to attend one of these meals on your farm? Um, it's really uh, an extraordinary event because... When you eat the food on the farm and you have that farmscape kind of laid out before you, the, the whole palette that, that, that you know, uh, Vitaly can create really magnifies by, I think, you know, a tenfold because it is this, it's this full experience. And how that kind of sinks into your, into your memory as, as an experience, then you, then you translate that to kind of how you go about your whole, you know, food paradigm from there on. So for me, like, I encourage people to come out to the farm, whether our CSA members or people we shop at the market with, certainly the chefs we sell to, come to the farm, have this experience, because how that parlays into our kind of commitment to one another is, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible intangible. And in what ways, Vitaly, does, does doing this inspire you as a chef? 
when you're there and working with these ingredients, have you gotten some new ideas based on, on doing these dinners? For us, it's a constant creative flow working with the farmers. That's how we plan our day. That's how we plan our weeks. That's how we plan our years. We talk with the farmers. Uh, for example, uh, Manuel and Leslie from Viridian Farms, uh, one day I had a bunch of beans left over from this farm that they couldn't grow anymore. I just handed them those beans, and they took it to their farm, and they started growing it for me. So now we call them paley beans. Um, nice. and, and so this year, hopefully, we'll have a nice big old harvest of those beans, and maybe they'll be ready for those dinner, and so maybe we'll try to feature them. So, I mean, that's the relationship that we have, mm-hmm. um, and it's constantly evolving. We'll sit down with a few of the other farmers, and we'll plan in January. It'll, we'll take out seed catalogs and say, okay, what do you guys want to see this year? And yeah. so the conversation starts with a crop, with an ingredient, with a farmer, and then we from there take it in a kitchen, in a restaurant. Yeah. And that's the way it should be, really. We work with the seasons really closely and work with the farmers really closely. And Erica, for, for you, what's been the most satisfying thing about watching these meals happen? Clayton Pitchfork has had this incredible opportunity to reconnect people with their food source. And so if our dinner is a success, it means that Mike is seeing our customers at his farm stand, Vitaly is seeing them in his restaurant, or people are joining the farms as CSA members and really giving some thought to where their food is coming from. Well, it sounds really exciting. So where would you tell people to go to get more information about being able to do this? Um, well, they can start by visiting the Plate and Pitchfork website at platonpitchfork.com. We have a very helpful resource section, a calendar for eating seasonally, and lots of other information. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, you guys. Uh, we've Thank got you. Thank you. <laughs> Erica Palmer of Plate and Pitchfork, Vitaly Paley, and Michael Payne. Thanks for joining us. to Livewire, the radio variety show that loves you for all your quirks, but it's your short attention span we love best. Coming up, audience haiku, author Richard Russo, more from John Roderick, and poet Scott Poole. Coming this fall to the Tinkwater Auditorium in East Chafee, Oklahoma, it's a timeless story of friendship. Where are all my friends, the old ones and the new? I want to find a place where we can start anew. And sitting in front of a computer. But I don't want to actually see them or get to know how they feel. I just want to passively spy on them and post updates about my It's Facebook the Musical, the tale of one person's desire to stay passively connected to hundreds of people she may or may not know personally. She's not sure. Do I know you in real life? Did we meet last week at Pilates? Oh, are you a friend of Sarah Capelli or that nice podiatrist who knows karate? Context. I need context for your face and name. Everyone started to look the same, especially after what's-his-name bought me that fourth mango-rita. Her foray into the world of love. The writing's on my wall. You have a lovely smile. 
I like the pictures of your pug and most of your profile. But it's weird that you like Star Trek. Picard is not my style. If you were into BSG, I'd walk you down the aisle. Nerd alert! <laughs> I know, Star Trek nerd alert. But your pug's still cute. How do you feel about Firefly? While her friends struggle to keep family first. Now my mom is on the Facebook and there's nowhere left to hide. She tried to friend request me and she will not be denied. It's sitting in my inbox, it's been rotting there since May. It won't be too much longer till my wall is gonna say. I can't believe you use this kind of language. I thought it raised you better than this. Delete this immediately. I love that Sarah Palin. Hope the rash cleared up. Foreigners scare me. Love mom. And love dies. Why did I ever friend you? Why did we date at all? Now I see all the bimbos posting on your stupid wall. And I never leave the house because I just keep clicking to see if you've added any new pictures of you and that tart you met at the Apple store when your status read, just a couple of iPad lovers. And why didn't you ever want to buy technology with me? And did she just give you a cow on Farmville? You hate Farmville! Come to the show that the chafey intelligencer called Marginal. Stop poking me! You're poking me! Who's poking me? She's poking me! They're poking me! We, we poke at me! Ow! What? I poked myself. And KXTL television called Almost Bearable. Just log in one more time. Just one more to time. show him you're not bitter. I kind of am. Post pictures of your brand new rag. Well, kill him. And let's start again. Channing, off-Broadway's darling from 1978, Betamax the Opera. Come to Facebook the Musical and update your status to fun. Play producers may secretly record audience members during the performance and sell their conversations to advertisers without their knowledge. Having fun at a play, but also looking at my iPhone. It's Facebook! Our next guest won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction for his book Empire Falls, which was later turned into a miniseries for HBO. His book Nobody's Fool was also adapted for the screen with an amazing performance from Academy Award-winning actor Paul Newman. His latest book, That Old Cape Magic, is a story of family, marriage, in-laws, and the myth of a better place. It's just recently been released in paperback. Please welcome Richard Russo to Livewire. Richard? It's great to be here. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, about screenwriting. With Nobody's Fool and The Risk Pool, there were different people who took your, screen, who took your novels and interpreted them for the screenplay. Um, but with Empire Falls, you actually wrote that teleplay yourself. Yeah. 
What for you, did you discover new things about that story? Were there things that you decided to change or felt should have been changed when you actually wrote the screenplay? The thing that I thought should have been changed was the screenwriter. Um, <laughs> um, I worked with, um, with Fred Skepsi, who was just a wonderful director and that wonderful cast. Um, and uh, I had tried to get everybody to hire uh, a different screenwriter because that, the, the novel started being developed almost as soon as I finished it. And um, so they were coming to me at a time when I was particularly exhausted from the book itself. And normally, if you can put your, your, some distance between yourself uh, and whatever it is that you're adapting, uh, then you can come at it with really fresh, fresh eyes. And unfortunately, um, I, I was just so exhausted when I started that thing that I think if, if we'd started it a year later, maybe I would have looked for um, some different solutions. But I, I think what... what um, what I did was that I solved, a, I solved a lot of the dramatic issues in pretty much the same way that I did uh, uh, in well, the, novel, the novel, just because there wasn't enough time between the, um, uh, the, the writing of the novel and the writing of the screenplay. And you co-wrote Twilight, which was another Paul, Paul Newman and, and Susan Sarandon. Yeah, not, Sarandon. not the vampire Twilight. Not the vampire <laughs> Twilight. <laughs> yeah, uh, Robert Benton and I have actually done three movies uh, uh, together, and Paul Newman and I did uh, three movies together. Um, we had Twilight, um, and um, and of course Nobody's Fool and, and and Empire Falls for 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 Paul and I, and Robert Benton and I did the Twilight screenplay together, and also a movie called The Ice Harvest. What normally in the film process, in in the, they normally allow playwrights to be involved in the in the directing and the first production of a of a show, whereas with film the writer is really taken out of that process very often. But it sounds like you continued to be involved in those films. Well, um, with with Empire Falls, my my gift to the director was to stay away uh, from the from the from the actual shooting. Um, those were all, with the exception of Helen Hunt, um, everybody else in that was pretty much a, a theater or was, was, a, uh, was a film actor. Uh, Newman and Ed Harris and, and Robin Wright and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, and filming um, um, television and filming theatrical movies, very different because the, the pace is so much slower for, for a theatrical film. And, and even for a budget like HBO had for Empire Falls, they were still shooting an amazing amount of, of footage every day. And having a writer around is just one more thing because the, the actors are... The actors are coming up to the writer and saying, God, you know, if we could just give my character just, just maybe like three or four more lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they're, they're lobbying the screenwriter to, to do various things. So that was my gift to the director was to, was to stay out of the way. That's a very thoughtful gift. <laughs> I thought yeah. so, yeah. Well, let's talk about that old Cape Magic, mm-hmm. um, which is now out in paperback. Yeah. Um, can you, I'd, I'd love to have you read a little bit of the book, but can you talk a little bit about uh, what the book is, what the book is about? Well, it's, I, I think of this as a, as a book about how difficult it is to shut your parents up after they're dead. Um, That's a good estimate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this book was written, uh, when there were a number of things going on in my own life that, that sort of paralleled what, paralleled what was going on in this book. My mother was very ill. Um, and at the same time, I was, I was um, uh, planning both of my daughter's weddings, 
uh, one of which was uh, in London and the other in Camden, Maine, where we, where we live. And I think that's a, I mean, we're, we're all living longer now. And so I think we're, we're, we're probably two generations ago, you didn't experience that quite so much where if you're, you know, in your 50s, you've, you're getting your children married at the same time, you're still, you're still dealing with, with, uh, with ill parents. But um, my father had died much earlier, and I still have wonderful conversations with him. He was a really charming, uh, roguish uh, sort of fellow, um, and, and he still um, visits me from time to time. We have wonderful conversations. He gives me um, still very bad advice from time to time. <laughs> You'd think everyone thinks that ghosts are so wise, but if they're the same people they were on Earth, exactly. not necessarily true. <laughs> exactly. It's a good point. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So this is this is a book about a, a about a middle aged uh, about a middle aged guy, uh, and he starts off uh, with in the beginning of this book a fairly simple task. He's heading to Cape Cod, and in the right wheel well of his car, he has his father's ashes, and he's going to scatter them. Uh, the book divides neatly into two parts, and by the time we get to the beginning of the second part, he has something else in the uh, the other wheel well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so do you want to read a, a, a quick excerpt yeah, from sure, us? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, this is, um, the character's name is Jack Griffin, um, and this is um, a book that deals with the past. And so I'm going to give you a little backstory here. Um, Griffin's mother is an academic uh, from uh, an, an, an English professor, um, and he is invited in this scene to her um, uh, retirement dinner. Despite deep misgivings, Griffin had accepted the university's invitation to attend his mother's retirement dinner. There happened to be a bumper crop of retirees that year, and each was given the opportunity to reflect upon his or her many years of service to the institution. Griffin found it particularly disconcerting that his mother was the last speaker on the program. He supposed it was possible the planners were saving the best, most distinguished retirees for last, though more likely they shared his misgivings about what might transpire. And putting her last represented damage control. When it was finally her turn, his mother rose to a smattering of polite applause and went to the podium. That she was wearing an expensive, well-tailored suit only deepened Griffin's apprehension. Unlike my colleagues, she said, directly into the microphone, the only speaker of the evening to recognize that fundamental necessity, I will be brief and honest. I wish I could think of something nice to say about you people (laughs) and this university. I really do. But the truth we dare not utter is that ours is a distinctly second-rate institution, as are the vast majority of our students, as are we. Then she returned to her seat (laughs) and patted Griffin's hand as if to say, there now, that wasn't so bad, was it? (laughs) Here's something strange. She said, for the first time in over a decade, I wish your father were here. He'd have enjoyed that. Excellent. From the old, 
some of that old cape magic. Um, and, and essentially, a lot of what happens in the book is that uh, Jack just seems to, to continue making kind of small mistakes that end up um, making making yeah that turn into bigger <laughs> yeah, mistakes yeah. Or, or bigger bigger problems, um, which is, I think happens to a lot of people. And, and I, I listened to a wonderful podcast um, where you said about the character Jack always knows what the wrong thing to do is, but the knowledge isn't particularly helpful to him. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that that's true of all of us. And, um, but, but, what, but I wonder, do you feel like characters in books necessarily have to make bigger mistakes than people in real life just to keep the story interesting? Or is it enough to just make them real? Um, I subscribe to uh, the second principle, I think. Um, I think that the small mistakes that we make um, are often very telling. They're often very funny. And what rings tour, truer to our own experience of this life, really, than to watch a character doing something small, right, that turns out to be wrong, and then compounding that? Because that's what we do when we make a small mistake, right? We make it bigger. Right, and so uh, one of the principles of this uh, of, of this particular novel um, that um, Jack is always thinking about is a, is a, a term from carpentry, plum. Whether whether your life really is plum or not, whether it's in balance, uh, and he comes to realize that um, when you're building something, whether you're building a life or a marriage. Uh, or a sense of your own story, because Jack himself is a storyteller. When something small is wrong in the beginning, you're suddenly a little bit out of plumb, what, what carpenters say, a half a bubble off, you know? And when you're half a bubble off in the first story of the building uh, that you're erecting, it's no big deal. When you get 20 or 30 stories up, or 20 or 30 years into a marriage, and you've been building a half a bubble off all the way up, <laughs> by the time you get 30 stories up, you can see that sucker tilt with the naked eye. And there are cracks yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and the whole thing is in danger of falling down. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think that so much of this is about this idea that Jack's parents would go to Cape Cod to try to save their marriage. And so many of us believe that there is this place that we will get eventually where there will be happiness. And, and it seems like, it feels like a very dangerous idea, and it seems to me that, that that's part of what you're talking about, is, is that we have these expectations, and, and that no one meets those expectations. And that as long as we have them, we're doomed. Yeah, and we see it now, I think, uh, more than ever, because my parents and grandparents lived pretty much in the same place all of their lives, and... And, and we used to have, um, we used to, my mother worked for General Electric all of her life. And um, we didn't move around as much. Now I think that we don't all work, even people who work for big companies now like Google, you know, they still, but they move, they're constantly moving. Yeah. We wake up in the morning and we see that little thing in the computer that says 10 best places in America to live. Who doesn't click on that? Yeah. You know, we all do, and, and we all, we're, we're very, very um, mobile now, and I think we all have this notion 
that there is this place out there where we will be happier. And we'll be better and if, people. And we will there. be better people. We will be that's that's the thing. It will make us better people. It will make our marriage happier. It will do whatever it will do. Yeah, we Well, and the book somewhat answers that question. I won't tell people what the answer is. You can probably guess. Um, but the book is it's a wonderful book. It's it's just out in paperback. The book is That Old Cape Magic. Thank you so much for joining us. Richard great. Russo. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Livewire Radio, and now it's time for the... Audience Haiku! We have given our audience three subjects on which to expound. Scandals, plates, and pitchforks. Faces for Radio Theater will now read their favorites with the help from Mr. Ralph Huntley. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring Skinny Dip Summer Seasonal Beer with only 110 calories per serving. Drink Skinny Dip and look better when you Skinny Dip. But don't Skinny Dip immediately after drinking because you'll get a cramp and it doesn't matter how skinny you are, no one looks good while drowning. (laughs) Thanks, New Belgium. And now, audience haiku. Ralph, can I get some... uh... Caribbean-themed kind of fun, tropic, Tropicana, Tropicalalia. Something, something, you know. What does that mean? He knows. Yeah, see? Vacation rent boy. He carries luggage. Back sore? Massage it. Lower. Thank you, Matt. Ralph, can I have um, something that you might hear out on the porch on a summer afternoon, maybe on a banjo? (laughs) (laughs) Plates. I like them all. The one I like the best is the plate in your head. Thank you, MSG. And now, from the audience, all the way from the audience to read her very own haiku, please welcome Emily. Can I have some uh, music to go with a workout at the gym? You'll see. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Stretch, breathe, bend, reach, flex. Never mind. I thought you said Pilates, not plates. <laughs> Emily, great job. Great job, audience on the audience IQ. And now, please welcome back to the stage, Mr. John Roderick. Mm-hmm. 
song called Ultimatum. Student, why do you dream of me when you dream of your acre of trees? It was agreed I came to burn leaves. It's all I ever claimed to do. Plowman, I'll never grow into. My arms miss you, my hands miss you. The stars sing, I've got their song in my hand. Ah, oh, blue in the broad light of day, your claws are snagged on my face. Say it, I wish we were naked, and I wish that I could take it. When you turn on me, my arms miss you, my hands miss you. The stars sing, I've got their song in my heart. Or wait for me impatiently And I hope I can't keep seeing you As long as you don't say you're falling in
And now, as promised, he's been working very, very hard for the last 56 minutes, like our own sort of poetic Oompa Loompa, but taller, and he's not orange. Uh, please welcome back poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned that I want to help old men like those crooked old guys from the movies with the cornucopia horns they would put up to their ears to hear. I think this was all the rage in audio technology in 1928. I always wanted that little old man in that little old movie to turn around and show everybody and strap that hearing horn to one of those Bob Dylan harmonica holders and throw a guitar on and start singing out like John Roderick in big Ricola kind of whole notes that make birds and even squirrels explode into flight. And he'd be half standing in the middle of a blackberry bush in the rain under a stand of dripping furs just off an organ field, and his arms would have to be bleeding a bit from strumming in all those wet thorns, and the whole company of cultured better-than-thou shouters at him would drop their gin and tonics and drool mindlessly. <laughs> I like this idea. Yes, I like this. Because this little old man is supposed to be infirm, marginalized, a beautiful little joke. And I bet you think this little old guy has a beard and a comb over. But he's actually very hairy and not even that old. He may even be a giant, cuddly, culturally advanced squirrel. (laughs) I want this man to feel like royalty, like a squirrel prince. I want to set up a gourmet meal in a field with people wearing their finest clothes in the rain. So the water glasses get naturally filled again and again. And nobody will talk too loud to the old man so he can hear. They'll just hold up a radish, and that means, you look like a stunning squirrel. Or holding up a grilled eggplant means, can I friend you? And I hope that'll make him happy and we'll all smile like old friends. And after we're all sated from a beautiful meal, this is when I'd like him to pull out his award-winning novel, and we'd all be so shocked I thought he just wanted to steal the nuts, a confused woman will say. We'll listen to his liquid words and be taken out of our field. We'll be transported to a place where people try to shut their dead parents up. A place where all the voices are too loud, where everyone shouts at you, even the dead, and all they shout at you is bad advice. And when we look up, he's just disappeared into the edge of the field, a melancholy horn noise following him a plumb line hanging from a branch, just half a bubble off of perfect. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for coming out. Our thanks tonight to our guests, Erica Polmar, Vitaly Paley, Michael Payne of Gaining Ground Farm, Richard Russo, and John Roderick. The Mutton Chops were Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Tonkin Torp, Fitch and Associates, the Falcon Art Community, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and listeners such as You Fine People. Additional support by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, enhancing the quality of life of Oregonians through the support of the arts and education. 
Livewire is created and produced by Kay Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Paul O'Brien. Lighting by Rhiannon Rodriguez. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, and Sean McGrath. Performer Laura Faye Smith and Siren of Sound Pachinowski. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management by Drew Flynn. Theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Old Wives Tales. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our wardrobe stylist is Cami Gray. Learn to dress like us on CamiGray.com. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Publicity by Gazelle Communications. For more information about Livewire or to download our podcast, visit our website at LiveWireRadio.org. This is Tyler Hughes, and so ends another chapter of Livewire. Sleep tight, children, and don't have nightmares about poet Scott Poole. He's just pretend. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.